Well, hello there, and welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. April is flying by, and I'm really excited about warmer weather. The trees are now officially bursting with leaves, and yet it snowed this past Monday here in the Midwest. Uh, nothing beats a Midwestern spring, am I right? But speaking of spring, let's spring into today's episode. Because we're talking with Dr. Jenna DeLossi on the incredible overlap between eating disorder and OCD. So make yourself at home, fam, because it is time to talk. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Alrighty, you guys. It's so great to be with y'all again this week. And last week, our fam here, we wrapped up a three-part mini-series on autism and OCD, which was honestly a really treasured series for me. And it's already helped me in advocating and improving understanding for my kiddos. One of my sons was actually due for an OT evaluation update within the last couple of weeks. And a bunch of his older goals that were written were like to reduce meltdowns from this many times to this many times or this many minutes to this many minutes. Improve participation in non-preferred tasks with an X number of prompts. These kind of goals. And honestly, I had the pleasure of explaining to our evaluator, hey, my son is autistic. I'm okay with him having feelings, even big feelings, and that feeling matters. Maybe he's anxious. Maybe he's distressed. Maybe he's overwhelmed. Maybe he just really, really wants to be able to do this thing on his own so badly. And those feelings are valid. And at the same time, I think a better goal that could still support him is in self-advocating for his needs. I really want to be able to do this, and I'm so upset that I'm not making my goal. And then he can work out with the therapist how to ask for help. Or if he ultimately decides, nope, this isn't for me, then my goal is for him to know he's not broken because he has feelings and doesn't want to do this. And yet, sometimes there's going to be circumstances in life where we have to either communicate why we won't or figure out what support we need so that we can complete the task. Because sometimes we're not going to have choices. That goes for any of us, autistic or not. And he's allowed to feel differently about the task than you or me. His experience matters. And yet sometimes in life we're going to face obstacles we don't want to face. So how do I understand why this is hard for me, especially from a sensory perspective? Okay, and then if I can say that and we can problem solve some sensory strategies that'll help preload me or help me regulate and be able to tolerate this, maybe not only will I be able to tolerate it, I'll learn I like it. But I definitely need to preload with a certain sensory diet beforehand or it is just not going to go well. Or what are some ways I can help manage my overwhelming feelings of frustration that can promote regulation? Can I ask for help or accept help? Can I still be strong and receive help? Yes. So already the language and the support I'm able to provide my autistic loved ones is evolving just from these past couple of talks. 
So I'll say one last thank you to Dr. Jeremy Schumann for being a part of all three of those episodes. It was a marathon and yet a sprint because I feel like there's just so much more that we can say and do and think about. So thank you, Jeremy. I also want to know for all of you Bison alumni out there and you're like, what? Like, I know. I almost can't say it with a straight face. I did not realize this was the mascot, but IU, Indiana University, home of the bison. Okay, home, home on the range. That's not actually the school that Jeremy attended. So last week I was like, what? We're Hoosiers together. We have the Hoosier connection. Well, guess what? I missed one significant word. He went to Indiana State University in Terre Haute, not IU in Bloomington. And apparently the mascot at Indiana State University is called Sycamore Sam. I was like, Sycamore? Like the tree? No, it's a blue squirrel. But hey, I did infer correctly on the sycamore trees insofar as there's a lot of sycamore trees down there and squirrels like to gallivant from tree to tree. So why not? Sycamore Sam. So sorry, Bison, you cannot claim Jeremy as one of your progeny. But hey, we still have that Hoosier connection, all of us. So tickled I remain. Last week, I also shared how I am going through an ICBT training right now, which continues today and into next week. And I love trainings, y'all. And I love learning, which is part of why I love spending this time with you, fam. I've learned so much since our family gatherings have started, and it's been a real treat to hear from lived experience warriors, support folks, practitioners, and researchers alike. I feel so lucky to be in this space with all of you. And additionally, I saw many posts and comments about the ADAA conference from last weekend in Washington, D.C. That's the Anxiety and Depression Association of America conference for any of our new fam in town. And it sounds like that was a phenomenal time for learning, growing, networking, and beyond. And so thanks to everyone who posted insights or new-to-them research from ADAA. It sounds like it was a great time for growth. Speaking of ADAA, though... I uh, I did a thing a month or two ago. So ADAA distributed these great infographics to advertise for the different presenters, for the different talks that were going on. So I went to the ADAA conference website and they have a search engine for different speakers. And I perused through some different topics that were going to be coming up at last weekend's conference. I noted some of the content areas that I think are really important to our OCD family community. And among the list... I found today's esteemed guest, Dr. Jenna DeLossi. She presented this past weekend at a roundtable with a panel of great colleagues to discuss the phenomenological overlap and diagnostic comorbidity of OCD and anorexia nervosa. So on a whim, I got in contact with her to see if she would be willing to come talk with our family about this too. Because as I alluded to in the intro, there is an incredible overlap between eating disorder and OCD. And not just when it comes to anorexia nervosa, but all eating disorders. I know I've seen it in my work with clients, and my guess is that if you're an OCD specialist, you have too. On the flip side, certified eating disorder specialists, if I was a betting woman, I would put money on the fact. Fact! I'm being bold, y'all. I've dropped the F word. Fact. <laughs> not your mama's F word, probably, but still fact that you have come across OCD too. So having this conversation is really important. And you guys, not only was Dr. DeLossi willing, but she recently had a baby, was on maternity leave, and gave up nap time to talk with us. All year like, whoa, right? It's a big deal. 
We talked about this a little bit with the OC dad, Jason Adams, but nap time is precious time. So the fact, again, the F word, that she gave up nap time. I mean, Jenna, you're already getting all the gold stars and mad respect from the fam here. That is precious time. So let's do ourselves a favor and dive right in because there's a lot of great content to cover and a nap time to squeeze it into. So join us and let's get to it. All right. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And we are so delighted today because I have special guest, Dr. Jenna DeLossi with me. She works out of Pennsylvania at the Center for Hope and Health. And she is a very accomplished person in our field, not only someone that has an expertise in OCD, but she also specializes in cognitive behavioral treatments for eating disorders, body image concerns, PTSD, phobias, and other anxiety disorders in addition to OCD. She's licensed as both a clinical psychologist and professional counselor in Pennsylvania and a board-certified specialist in behavioral and cognitive psychology through the American Board of Professional Psychology. Now, I saw, Jenna, that you mm-hmm. also attended Oxford for part of your professional training, and you are in the midst of writing a book. We were just chit-chatting about that. That is being reviewed by Cambridge for editing. So I'm really excited to talk with you today. We actually just recently on the podcast talked about the overlap of, or rather intersection, really, of PTSD and OCD as well as trauma that doesn't meet the the full clinical criteria for PTSD. So our family community here is a little familiar with prolonged exposure. In addition, definitely has a good base and understanding for exposure and response prevention. That's ERP for the new family that is tuning in today. But today what we're going to be talking about is eating disorders and the overlap of eating disorders when it comes to OCD and really anxiety disorders at large. So first, I just want to give you a nice welcome because we super appreciate your time and your voice on this. Thank you for being a part of the show. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the intro. Yes. Happy to do so. Okay. So we were chit-chatting before we started recording, and I was thinking about this. According to International OCD Foundation, there is an overlap when it comes to eating disorders that 64% was the statistic, this was coming out of a study from K et al. 2004, from the American Journal of Psychiatry talking about the comorbidity of anxiety disorders with anorexia and bulimia nervosa. Mm -hmm. But what I was, what I found striking was that per IOCDF in this write-up, 64% of eating disorder cases have at least one anxiety disorder. 41% of the 64%. So that is like two thirds, roughly, right? Right. A lot of that 60%. A lot of the 60% is OCD. Also, in a write-up that was a little more recent, because that was out of 2004, but in 2022, I was able to see that out of the Journal of Eating Disorder, and it looks like Hamilton at all, that the statistic is now roughly 62% for anxiety, 54% co-occurring with a mood disorder in general, and 27% overlapping with substance use or PTSD. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we see there then is that there is a really common occurrence of having 
these co-occurring, or as we call them in the field, comorbid disorders happening along with eating disorder. And I think people's idea of what eating disorder is, first of all, it's broad. It's more than just anorexia and bulimia. But again, you know, you might have a famous actress that comes out and says they struggle with this or an actor. It certainly impacts males as well. You may see it running rampant on college campuses. Certainly that is a place it shows up, but it shows up outside of there. And so I think, first of all, can we lay a foundation for a better understanding of eating disorder? And we don't have to go through all the DSM criteria, but just to give people a rough idea. Sure. So a lot of what you said is accurate. When the general public thinks of eating disorders, they tend to think pretty much of anorexia first. Mm -hmm. Say they think of bulimia. Mm -hmm. And in bulimia, they tend to just think of self-induced vomiting. Mm -hmm. They tend not necessarily usually the binge. And then the eating disorder that is actually of the three, the most prevalent binge eating disorder, which is a newer diagnosis. I mean, that that was now in DSM-5. DSM-4 and earlier did not have its known code for binge eating disorder. It used to be part of the not otherwise specified. But anyway, that is actually the most prevalent out of the three. And probably what the public and pop culture tends to think of the least. And ironically, anorexia nervosa is actually the least prevalent out of all of the eating disorders. However, if you think of, you were to survey 10 people on the street and say, what do you think of when you think of an eating disorder? They're going to describe anorexia. Right. Because that's what pop culture and media has widely told us that's what eating disorders are. And they're probably going to think of usually like a young Caucasian upper to upper middle class female. Mm -hmm. And that is just simply not accurately representative of what eating disorders are, especially in 2023. Right. So that said, the three primary eating disorders, when we think of what eating disorders are is anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, in the category, DSM-5 changed it to eating and feeding disorders. You do have avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, ARFID, mm-hmm. in that. And you also have PICA. But they are, how do I want to put this? They are like conceptually very different. Way to understand how they got there, how they came to be, and therefore then how you treat them are very different than anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So when you when you see a specialist who says, oh, I specialize in eating disorders, they usually mean anorexia, bulimia, binge eating. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, though, I will say that is starting to include ARFIT because ARFIT is becoming more and more prevalent, which is one of those things where it's like, is it or is it now just have a name? Because has ARFID always been around and we never had a name for it? Or is it becoming more prevalent because there's just parents and our society accommodates more and there's more options? If you go to a grocery store, there's gluten-free this, there's this free that, this free this. You go to a, a restaurant, there's all these different options, which there's vegan, there's this, there's that. And we do know, research shows us, the more options humans have, the more anxiety it creates. Actually, having too many options is actually not good. Mm -hmm. And so because our society has given so much options around food, that may explain a bit more of an uptick in why we're seeing more avoidant restrictive food intake, not for body image reasons. And that's a really important distinction. And would it be a fair way to categorize it to say the function of it is different when we're thinking? Okay. And ARFID, I was thinking too, right before you said it, and then I'm like, we're right there. Yeah, is it more prevalent? 
Is it that we? it's just recognized now? It's kind of like peanut allergies are more prevalent, but have metabolisms, you know, also adapted to become that way? Or is it just being recognized now, right? Uh, but also you're speaking to when they're with decision fatigue, when there are more options, it does raise more anxiety. I don't know for folks, depending on we have people listening from all over the world. One of my first experiences traveling internationally, I remember going to the grocery store and we had to pick up something like ketchup. And there was one ketchup. There was one ketchup in the grocery store. It was like a little it was also not like this big box store like we can have in America. And so I remember going in and going wow, there's one option. But when mm-hmm. there's one option, then that's the one option. That's the one. Right. Yeah, there's, not, there's, no, there's, nothing to, there's nothing to lament over the decision of what to get. It's just this is the ketchup we're getting. Right. And then you go into an American. I haven't looked at the ketchup aisle lately, but I would not be surprised. And I don't feel like this is an exaggeration if there were maybe 100 different kinds of ketchup available or, you know, of some variety. And so I think that makes a really good point. And ARFID is certainly one that comes up in the OCD realm quite a bit, but also eating disorder at large comes up, like we're going to talk about today, in the eating disorder realm. So again, for different functional reasons. Very different, yes. So much so, I'd say the function is so, uh, emphasizing the function is different is so important because it's actually in the DSM criteria. Yeah. So if you have somebody who you're evaluating for ARFID, their food restriction can in no way be tied to body image, because if it is, then it's moved to anorexia. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a rule out criteria is, do they have the body image component or do they not? Right, right. So it's really important, the why. Right. And that is at large an OCD, right? You know, or mental health treatment at large. We need to understand the why to understand how we can help when this is outside of the realm of what we would expect, when this is maybe even a typical issue, whether developmentally or just a typical response to grief, what, any way you slice it, like we have to look at the function. When it gets to the point, even if it feels like it could be a typical response where it interferes with your ability to function, Then we can also see it growing into excess and we can go, okay, again, the function of it, while may have had utility, is now outside excess and it's causing disruption to your ability to function in different areas of your life. And so it is really important to look back at those pieces, but it's under the umbrella of eating disorder. And we have have a lot of OCD-related disorders under the umbrella of OCD that function very differently but share enough commonality that through time it's evolved and fallen into this category. Yeah. So we're talking about eating disorders today. And interestingly enough, like you said, anorexia is not the number one diagnosed eating disorder. And it's interesting because I know even in my own practice, most of the cases where there is, can we rule out OCD or is there a co-occurring? They're always, always anorexia cases. And so that seems to be, and I don't know if in the medical community it's a favored diagnosis, but I think that seems to be a way that a lot of people, I don't know whether it's a bias or just a reference point, they're like, oh, it's probably anorexia if it's Mm -hmm. eating disorder, especially within our field. And it's complicated because it's a medical diagnosis and mental health kind of overlap, right? And so that's tricky in and of itself because we can get a lot of referrals from a hospital, for example. 
or they can come into us first, maybe parents or even adults. Again, this affects males, females. It affects more than Caucasian people. Much like OCD, it can strike anyone. And in terms of getting help or support for it, some of our statistics may be leaning towards one group over another, but that doesn't mean prevalence isn't there. It just means it's not reported, which is, I, I realize, like, well, you could say anything's not reported, but we know this to be true from working in the clinical sphere. Let's talk a little bit about, I know ARFID is functioning very different than classic eating disorder. But I feel like it's being recognized more or suspected more by clinicians, at least within the OCD sphere. And so can we talk a little more about ARFID? Because we've talked about it before when we talked about emetophobia here on the podcast. But I think it is confusing. And you made a really important distinction that it's not related. It, it doesn't function as a tool for body image or addressing body image concerns. So ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, let's talk a little bit more about that and help the family community understand what is ARFID and how does it differ from just clinical picky eating? Yeah. So some understand it as like a really, really extreme, extreme form of picky eating. Mm -hmm. um, certainly in the clinical world, we don't use the word picky eating, but I do understand why people conceptualize like that because... In a way, that is how it presents, but in a really, really extreme way, almost like how you would maybe say anorexia is really, really, really extreme dieting, mm -hmm. kind of idea, kind of almost parallel that. Yeah. Like obviously, of course, anorexia is not a diet and ARFID isn't picky eating, but there is some root in that, in the behavioral pattern. Right. So what it is, is it's a restriction of food and the food can be... Really of anything. I mean, most commonly we tend to see like meat and seafoods and veggies tend to be what is restricted. And so that's another that's another piece of information of how you can be mindful of the differentiation between that and anorexia is we're seeing a lot of people with ARFID eat a lot of like yellow and brown foods from the food groups. Mm -hmm. So pizzas, pastas, mac and cheese dessert foods, which historically, not typically what people with anorexia tend to eat. Right. So highlighting even more, it's not about like weight loss or like weight control. And therefore, there are some people with ARFID who are of a normal weight or even no. live in a higher BI. So we want to be mindful of that too, to not, to not write off someone based on what their weight is. Yeah. Um, but they're avoiding a lot of food and it's to a level that it's either causing a weight deficiency, meaning mm -hmm. they're, they're really low in weight, a nutritional deficiency. Mm -hmm. So their, their blood work, I had a, a, my business partner, Melissa, had a patient who is not particularly thin, actually, but almost had to get a blood transfusion because she was so badly anemic mm -hmm. from lack of nutrition. Having, yeah, from lack of nutrition. Mm -hmm. But she did eat. She ate a lot of like, carbs and cheese pretty much but she wasn't getting enough of iron and was really really badly anemic yeah so that would be an example of nutritional deficiency or psychosocial impairment so we tend to see the psychosocial impairment less with little kids usually when parents bring kids and children in for our fit it's because their weight is too low they're not growing 
or they have nutritional deficiency. And, and a doctor said, we need to address their, their eating. The little kids don't tend to have too much of the psychosocial distress, probably because they can get away with that in their peer groups. Like they, the way that they're eating most likely mm-hmm. isn't raising many flags amongst the way children eat. I mean, granted, we know that most children who love like chicken fingers and fries and pizza, we hope and assume that they're able to eat other things. Right. So these kids go, our kid with Arfred goes to a birthday party and there's like chicken fingers and fries serve. They're able to blend in. Right. They're not having as much of that psychosocial distress other than maybe at home, honestly, with their parents, who their parents are the ones cracking down. You need to eat more, you need to eat more. But what we tend to see is as that child gets older, but we do know that most cases of RFID begin in childhood. Mm-hmm. We know the prevalence can go well into adulthood, but it is more rare that someone would develop RFID in adulthood. Usually it started in childhood. Mm-hmm. And that went untreated and that child now is a, is a teenager. That's when you're going to start seeing more of the psychosocial impairment because kids are going to start, peers are going to start saying stuff. They're going to say, oh my God, they don't need anything else. Or like, the kid, and they're becoming a young adult. They're now just well aware that like people notice this. People think this is weird that I only eat X, Y, and Z. People make comments. I don't want to have to face comments. So they then they start to get a little anxious about it. And then after we know this with OCD and anxiety disorders, the longer something is avoided, the more distressing it becomes, the more of a mountain it becomes. So if this kid has never eaten chicken one day in their life and they're now 16, Chicken is going to be terrifying compared to when they were five. Right. So there's becomes more of this psychosocial stress as they get older. And I'm thinking of a case that I worked with a few years ago. She was at 25. She was like, she's an engineer or something. Had, had, you know, a, a career, young career woman in her 20s, had ARFID since she was a kid. And a lot of her psychosocial distress was around like, she goes to business and marketing meetings. She's like, I can't order, I can't bring out a peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm engineering business meeting like that's not really socially acceptable or it's going to raise eyebrows people are going to say stuff it's going to make me very uncomfortable mm-hmm. and that's just not something you see little kids experiencing because of their norms are different yeah so so those are the three like criteria in so that the picky eating needs to be at an intensity that is causing psychosocial impairment nutritional deficiency or a weight issue meaning usual typically their weight is they're like a child or something, they're not growing or their their weight is not progressing as it should. Yeah. And the function of the avoided food, as we made clear, is not due to body image. It's due to one of a few reasons. So it could be an aversive consequence, they think. So they think a food's gonna make them get sick. Right. You know, that's one reason for the for the restriction. Another is sensory related. Mm-hmm. Texture smell, taste. And then there is research to show that a lot of people with ARFID, they actually do have hypersensitive taste and smell. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, you know, a piece of kale or a piece of fish, like they really are tasting that taste at a a more extreme level than maybe you or I. Mm -hmm. That or, and, and we see this especially with autism spectrum disorders, is the texture. Certain foods have textures that make them uncomfortable. Right. And then the third reason why people have ARFID is a general disinterest in food and eating. Mm-hmm. So they're not trying to restrict. They're, they're, they're usually the people who are like, yeah, I mean, if you could just like give me an IV and you could just pump me with calories, I'm happy to gain 20 pounds. 
I just like can't, I don't like eating. I just never think of it. I don't really feel hungry. I just, eh, nothing's appealing to me. And there's really not any kind of strong reason other than like, I just don't want to. And so I being forced to do it, doing something I don't want to do is distressing to me. Yeah. So anyway, so those are the three, the, the criteria and then the three whys of why people have ARFID. It's interesting. My So I have a couple autistic children. And when my middle son was about 18 months, we were traveling through an airport and he got really sick after going through the airport and lots of different GI distress. And he ended up testing positive for C. diff, which we think maybe came through our travels, even though we were trying to be hygienic and and sanitary, et cetera. But we couldn't really figure out another possible trigger. But the medicine had to be ingested because that is a gut problem. And it's terrible. It's terrible medicine that adults don't even enjoy taking, let alone little children. He used to be a really great eater before that. And then he took that medicine and it would make him gag and throw up. And after that, he became very, very restrictive. Now, he loves to eat all the time, (laughs) but he had like five foods and sometimes he would get sick of those foods. So as we have gone through feeding therapy with him, et cetera, And as his autism was expanding more with his developmental growth as well, just his way of processing things, he was like, that's going to make me sick. There wasn't really a way to convince him otherwise because he was, again, not even two. And so trying to feed someone but also having him do some food jagging because I'm tired of eating this food. Maybe peanut butter and jelly is the one food I'll eat, but I also have eaten it for every day for the last however many years. I'm kind of sick of it, right? And so we run into some of these different... I don't really want to try anything else. Right, right. So it's like, yeah, I'm hungry. I would love to eat, but I'm not going to eat. And it becomes, it can become an issue. But also the sensory, the texture pieces can come into play. And so that was another thing that I was thinking about when we come to like ADHD or ASD, when we're looking at our autistic folks, they may have some different textures they seek. They're going to be neutral on some, as we all are. We all have a sensory diet that we prefer or some that they're going to be avoiding of. Within ARFED, though, where we're talking about that hypersensitivity to not only the taste, but the texture. There's a lot of different elements to sensory, what it feels like going down the throat, swallowing, chewing, how chewy is it? I had to chew it this many times. And then you think about that through the lens of OCD. Okay, I'm having to chew this many times. And now how we can kind of get into some of these ritualistic numbers, or if I don't do that, what is the consequence going to be? It can be a a gray, sticky area. But before we get into that, one other question I was going to ask is to parse out this idea of the psychosocial impairment. Sometimes, because as I was listening to you describing, hey, I'm noticing other people aren't functioning this way. It's bringing more attention to me. I'm not matching the peer learning, et cetera. How do you differentiate that from insight? Because within OCD particularly, we know that insight around specific fears sometimes can be poor. Sometimes there can be recognition, but still that compulsion, that urge that is annoying to them that they can't fight because they feel like, oh, I know this is ridiculous, but I can't help but do it anyway. How would you differentiate some of that psychosocial impairment from insight? Because also, I think it would be insightful to look around Mm -hmm. and go, hey, I'm noticing 
that I'm doing this different than my peers, that's off, right? And so how would you differentiate the two? Great question. I've never thought about that before. So I think one of the first things that I'm thinking of as, as you were describing, as I was thinking how I want to answer it, is something that I'd heard both from my OCD folks, my anorexia bulimia folks, and my ARFID folks is the, what you said, the, the psychosocial distress. Like they have this awareness. Mm-hmm. They're different or like this, I, my behaviors around food are not what my friends do. Mm-hmm. I think the difference is in terms of their degree of insight is do they feel justified in it though? Like they may have the awareness that this is a lot and then my friends don't behave like this, but do I like to believe my reason? Do I feel that my reason is justified? Now I have worked with people who they're like, oh my God, this is, this is like such bullshit. Sorry. I don't know if I can curse. Oh, curse bullshit away. Bullshit away. We say like, in OCD, I, cursy words come up often. So right, we do not right, right. we do not shame on that. No, no. Right. <laughs> You're saying like, yeah, this is such bullshit. I don't even believe this anymore. I know this is ridiculous. I just like I I just can't I can't ride that wave of distress. It's just easier for me to just do the thing. It's easier for me to do the compulsion. That's why I'd say there's a good insight because they are aware that my rationale doesn't even make sense. I just don't want to sit with this yucky feeling. Yeah. Versus, you know, and this doesn't go with ARFID or OCD eating disorder. That that justification or that explanation can go for any of them. Versus, I know my friends don't do this. And I know I spend more time doing X, Y, and Z. Or I know, I know more people eat more foods than me. But like, I really like think that the texture is just going to make me so sick. It's just going to be so unbearable. I just can't risk it. I can't do it. When like, we know that if they get some exposures, like, chances are it's probably not going to make them sick. Yeah. Or chances are, even if they, they have an aversion to the smell or the texture, like with repeated exposures, they're going to get some distress tolerance. They're going to be able to get, like it's going to get a little less intense. They feel justified in their reason. So does that make sense? Yes, it does. So would it be fair to say then with anorexia or any of the eating disorders are fed, that it is more egocentric in nature? It feels more in sync with I'm justified. Because that is, that's part of my motivation mm-hmm. to continue to do this. This is, that belief mm-hmm. is, that is in sync with, I am going to get sick. That is the texture thing. Mm-hmm. I recognize that's different than my peers. It's stressful when I'm put in these situations. And yet, this is who I am versus mm-hmm. within OCD where it's more egodystonic. It's more yeah. of that distressing, like, and what if I'm judged or what if they don't invite me to lunch and I don't get a promotion because I'm back in my office eating PB&J, right? And so in terms of, because certainly within body dysmorphic disorder too, which would also probably be a good distinction to make, and sometimes the two can co-occur, but they certainly are different. BDD is more egocentric too. Like I really believe this to be justified or true about myself. So in terms of, and we talked Last November, so for any of the newer fam that is like, BD what? (laughs) Body dysmorphic disorder. We did a a great episode with Chris Tronson and his mom, Liz, about BDD and OCD. But can we talk a little bit about that distinction, too? Because certainly within anorexia, for example, there can be faulty perceptions of body image, right? This distorted sense of view. Like I look in the mirror and it's a funhouse mirror. What I see back is not what mom says she sees or my husband says he sees or my wife says she sees. It is 
this other kind of grotesque, distorted image often. And if I'm getting that wrong, please correct me. But we distinguish too, where can we draw the line between something like BDD and anorexia, certainly other eating disorders too, but that one tends to Mm, lean into those faulty perceptions of body image as well. Yeah. So good news, just like with ARFID and anorexia, the DSM makes it easy for us to make the distinction for BDD and anorexia as well. In in the BDD diagnostic criteria, they put their, I mean, they, they say it's some fancier words, but to put it more simply, if any of this obsessiveness about their appearance goes into the way that they're eating, they start changing the way they're eating, it's immediately eating disorder. Okay. So BDD is like, they, they, the BDD camp is pretty much like, I'm down with this, I'm down with this, but as soon as you start messing around with your eating, you start eating less, we're out. And then, and then, and then the presentation changes to an eating disorder because then it's like, okay, you have a body image issue and you're now eating differently because of said body image issue. You put those two together, eating disorder. Right. If the eating is not relevant, like they're doing stuff like dermatological stuff at their BDD, you know, obsessing about their face and pimples or acne, something like that. Eating is not relevant. Anorexia wouldn't be on the table. So, the, so like that, I think, it, like I said earlier about ARFID, is that the DSM just pretty much puts it right there. So the clinician doesn't really have to spend a ton of time really trying to figure out which one it is. If you follow the criteria and ask the right questions, you're going you're gonna to arrive at the answer, which is the correct diagnosis. Asking the right questions is key. Ding, ding, ding. If we just ask the right questions in life, Jenna, so many things could be different but it is especially for a lot of families and sufferers going into this and and practitioners that don't think they've interacted with this much they probably have more than they realized but haven't interacted with this much it can all seem very similar right but there are distinctions so we've talked about the function right and even when we're looking at food restriction for in the case of anorexia for example we really want to look at the function of it Is it because if I eat certain foods with sodium, I'm going to get more bloated and then my cheeks and my jawline are going to continue to look like this giant blimp and it's all about my jawline? You might go, well, that is about the body image and how that's affecting it. But that, that would actually fall more in line with, and correct me if I'm missing it, with BDD, maybe where you're obsessed with kind of how my jawline is looking and the food is only effective or for acne, like you said, only affected insofar as will this promote more acne or not. It's not about the overall weight. It's not about yeah, weight control. Weight control, yes. And so certainly the two can co-occur, but I think also one can get mistaken for the right. other. Right, right. Now, we do have a BDD scale, and I'm sure we have a number of eating disorder scales. Are there certain scales that you recommend for people yeah. that are not as ingrained in the research, but it's a reliable measure to at least For train. sure, yes. The one we use in our practice all the time, and it's diffused in a lot of literature as well, is the EDEQ, Eating Disorder Examination Questionnaire. Okay. By Chris Fairburn and his colleagues, who he he's who wrote the manual for CBTE, for eating disorders. So they have the long interview, the EDE interview, I don't even think, I wouldn't recommend that only because it's mostly used for research and people who are really specialized, they're familiar with it. But even still, like I don't use it in clinical practice. I mean, I've done a training on it. I, I'm familiar with how to administer the interview. But 
for practice, and again, that's more for research where where like all the patients have to be very standardized. Yeah. But for clinical practice, you're gonna get you're gonna get what you need to know from the EDQ. So it, it's just the the questionnaire version of that. Okay. And it's much shorter. I mean, it's a 28, I think 20 something questions. Give it to the patient. It's a Likert scale. And it really goes through all the different domains. It goes through restriction, binge eating, self-purging behaviors, and body image stuff. And so that way, when you're with, sitting with the patient, you can go through and go item by item and, and ask further questions about each item. Yeah. To, to understand why, you know, oh, you put a six, six is the highest. So you put a six here. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? So you can you can then like take an answer and then get more specifics around it. And the way to score it is also actually very easy too. I mean, I, I could probably, I could send it to you if you want. Yeah, the, I love that. The, the scoring manual. I can send you the PDF of the EDQ. It's, it's all from the UK. And in the UK, they put everything for free. So yeah, you don't hear, but I know. the UK does everything for free. So I can send you the question, the questionnaire and then how to score it. It's very easy how to score it as well. It's, you don't add it up. It, it's a little more complex than that, but it's, it's not difficult. And that'll basically tell you if this person's eating is in a clinical range or not. It's not going to tell you which disorder they have. It's just going to tell you we're at clinical significance. And then you have to use that with DSM questioning to hone in on the specific disorder. Chances are, though, if you're administering that, then you're going to be able to parse out what is most likely on, right. on which eating disorder it's coming out of. So if it's a public domain out of the UK, and thank you, I'd love for you to send those to me, would that be something I could post on this episode's blog post for any sure. clinicians out there that want to use this as a screening tool? Because I sure. think, great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Doc. Okay. No problem. So, yeah, it's very useful. We use it a lot. Yeah, yeah. And it is, I know, I know that I've gotten a BDD measure as well. And I'll have to double check if I can share that one. Because like you said, it's not the same situation here in the States of sharing things without paying for it. But I think that that can be really useful. So in researching, both for my own clients, say, doing many trainings, like when we did our BTTI training for Behavioral Therapy Training Institute, which is specializing in OCD through IOCDF, there's a lot of talk about comorbidities, eating disorder. We see in places like Rogers or McLean, we might have people that are struggling with both. And we see that exposure and response prevention in particular comes up in the research a lot, but I'm even seeing some research starting now for inference-based CBT as well on the co-occurring eating disorder and OCD. And what I would say is, I think that often, and something that has kind of surprised me in my literature review is often we look at something, we're like, oh, this is eating disorder, when really it's a manifestation of the OCD. And again, it's we're going to we're going to say this a lot, y'all. And you've heard me say it a lot over the course of time in the podcast, but we got to look at the function, right? This is probably pretty key in delineating when we have one, the other or both. Right. And so let's talk about this as it comes to OCD, because I have had clients come referred to me with OCD like tendencies. And if you think about it in a process disorder like eating disorder, there are going to be a lot of different rituals. There are going to be oh, for sure. a lot of very, very intrusive fears about what the outcome could be if dot, dot, dot. 
Well, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it, when we think about Uh, OCD? So if we could talk a bit more about that, and I know it's a broad subject, so it's hard to do justice in this little chunk at a time, but just for helping family members, partner spouses understand a little better what's going on here. Yeah. So something that is notable is, and this is especially with our restrictive eating disorders, so we're talking about our RFIDs and our anorexia, is the effects of being underweight and malnourished biologically increases compulsive behavior and obsessionality. Mm -hmm. So this is why you're almost always going to see a person with, let's say, anorexia have some OCD-like tendencies, almost always. Now, typically, that tends to be mostly around their food and their weight behaviors, but you do start to see it with cleaning, with organizational rituals. Research actually supports that, too, that the people with anorexia, those are the highest comorbidities, the highest, like, domain, I guess, in OCD we tend to see. However... When it's not a true OCD diagnosis, what you're going to see is that as that person regains weight in treatment, it kind of fizzles away, Mm -hmm. right? And that's not to say they're not going to have any kind of quirk or they're not going to be a little perfectionistic or whatever, but that ritual obsessionality behavior stuff, that does tend to wither away as their weight Mm -hmm. increases. Mm -hmm. Whereas when they truly have a co-occurring OCD diagnosis, Not only is there obsessionality and rituals about so many more things more than food, it doesn't go away when they gain weight. Mm -hmm. So that's one distinction to note. That's a really helpful distinction, even for me clinically, because I'm just thinking of like, oh, good, I'm on the right track here. Because within OCD, we have seen, and anybody here listening that has a loved one where you're like, we can be in a certain setting and this thing is always the trigger. And then in that setting, they're like, quote unquote normal or they uh, they just tolerate it right or they mask through it right and so we can get in those situations where it's like yeah if everyone's eating pizza and terrified of pizza and contamination and who touched it and and it can go on and on and on and on there with that but I don't want to be completely weird so I'll eat it (laughs) at the birthday party Mm -hmm. right I'm eating the pizza and they go well I don't get it they can eat it They're eating it. But what you're seeing is kind of these very extreme little slices of where they can tolerate it for the if we're looking at what's on the line, what's worse, eating it or the embarrassment, right, that can also feed into some OCD stuff. So you will see that continuation of the symptoms. And we're not just talking about in these very isolated little slices. But once you have a nourished brain and you're functioning and all your essential functions are getting the proper energy and fuel, then we see a dissipation then in what some of those ritualistic behaviors, when it's not co-occurring OCD, if they're getting nourished and they're still exhibiting that, if not more. Or getting worse. Or or the OCD gets gets worse. Right. Then you go, "Mm, something something more is going on here. And so we have the perfect storm of OCD latching on to eating disorder and them just kind of wrestling Absolutely. through that. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then I, I describe it as like when they really do have both, I mean, especially anorexia, OCD, I mean, they become besties. They become best friends, those two disorders, and they just make the person's life miserable. And something that you said that in both with eating disorders and OCD, when you said about like the social eating and they're like, well, they, they you know, their loved ones are like, well, he ate it or she ate 
she ate the ravioli or she ate the pizza. What people don't necessarily see is to what what's going what went into that though. Right. How much agony was that person in before, during, and after? And how much restriction, or if they have OCD and it's germ related, how much ritualizing did they do before, during, and after to eat that slice of pizza to look normal at the party? Or to, you know, with, with eating disorders, we'll often see if someone has a family dinner or something, they'll, they'll not eat all day so that they can go to the dinner and they'll eat a, and they'll appear completely normal, but, but they starve themselves all day and they might starve themselves tomorrow. So people just, that's something for loved ones, families, friends to just be aware of is that what you see in this isolated event right in front of you, whether we're talking about an eating disorder or OCD, isn't really reflective of the whole picture. And we... While that's wonderful when we see our loved ones doing the, quote, normal behavior, we don't want to be prematurely jumping to, oh, they don't have that problem anymore because we don't we didn't totally see everything. Right. And that's a really good point, because if you think about then in terms of like binging or purging, whether it's like excessive exercise or even then going on and forcing yourself to throw up because you ate the meal to appear normal. I think, yeah, that before, during, and after, and evaluating those different elements are really, really important. And so in looking at OCD, we can see that OCD symptomology really appear because there's going to be a lot of rituals. Some common ones may be tearing up food into small little pieces and making a scene out of all the crumbs and whatnot. Some of, the, some of them might be eating, it takes an hour. It takes an hour and a half to get through the meal. It's interesting because I, when I've even looked at like a sud scale of, you know, how distressing is it when food is torn up or it is a long eating, distress is a lot higher. And here you're thinking like, you're just playing with your food and you're having fun. This is distressing as shit for these people that are sitting there going hours and hours a day. I added up with a client recently. How long between all your meals and your snacks, if you're on a nutrition plan, if you've been diagnosed and your nutritionist is giving you like 3,500 calories to eat a day and you don't even like to eat, period, we added up the other day for a client, three hours, three hours of the day. Now me, I would probably enjoy eating for three hours and not having to be running and busy and whatnot and having more of these longer meals or whatnot. But also that would be with in line with my value system of going, hey, that sounds like fun for me. That would be very agonizing for some other people that do normative eating as well. And that would be extremely triggering for somebody that it's like, I don't want to be. Typically when when you're seeing it cause distress, other things are being compromised, right? Like when, when you or I or a person who doesn't have an eating issue... I would say the Europeans, they take forever to eat. They make meals last forever because right. it's like a nice family time. They're chilling. You know, Americans, we're like eating in three seconds. Right. But like nothing's being compromised there. That's part of their culture. That's part of their family values. They're, it's enjoyment time. It's family time. Right. They, they take an hour to eat the dinner. And but then they nap. Then they siesta. I'm like, right. this, is, this is a good system. I know. Well, there's a, don't get me started. There's a lot of things Europe does a lot better than the States. But, but yeah, I mean, when we're seeing someone with RFID or anorexia, bulimia say it takes me this, or, or OCD, it takes me this long to do this. Mm-hmm. Where, why, when you look into psychosocial distress and impairment it's causing, it's usually because other things have to go. You know, they're, they're taking forever to eat a meal. 
So therefore, I don't eat out with my friends anymore. So therefore, they get no social eating. They're having more social isolation time. They're missing out on more. And that, that's where that can become a problem. Right, right. And you think about here in America, too. And I remember this in college. I had many friends, mm. men and women, that struggled with eating disorder. And it's a very common issue, not just in, in college campuses, but that's a bit of a petri dish for a certain age range. For sure. Uh, and certainly some independence of not having people gatekeep how much you eat or don't eat, right? And so it shows up on college campuses, but it shows up everywhere. However, I, oh shit, where was I going with that point? I don't know. There was college campuses. I don't know. Uh, EA disorders do run rampant. They do. They do run rampant. In fact, this is part of why it's interesting. I always thought like, even going into psychology and I had one or two tracks that I was going to go for for grad school and therapy is the track I ended up going, but I remember thinking like, yeah, I could treat most things. I'm not going to be able to treat eating disorders because I'm burnt out. I'm burnt out, right? Because you see how it affects the people that you love and you care about. And you also see how you've played into and accommodated some of it. And then you get kind of like, if you don't do your own work around it, you can get resentful. Like, hey, I can't do this anymore. But the, but the irony in this is that it's very similar when we think about it in terms of OCD and addiction models. When I think of process right. addictions like gambling, sex, substance use, there is a lot of overlapping roadmaps of how those different disorders or disease progressions can go. And so certainly it, it can be difficult. Looking at OCD, first of all, not people aren't always super eager or excited, especially if you're like a minor and your parent is saying you're going to go into this with eating disorder as well. Sometimes that can be hard to have a buy-in to treatment. There's a lot of distress. Lord. And so there's buy-in that I'm distressed. I don't like feeling this anxious. And at the same time, Treatment means I'm going to be more anxious because I'm going to have, you're going to force me right. to do the thing I don't want to do. I know it. I know it. I know it. So a lot of people can come into treatment and family members are experiencing this, whether with their children or their partners going, okay, so buy-in isn't great. And knowledge isn't always great on the overlap between OCD and eating disorder. Also, we can go into the doctor and I can say, I'm really concerned about my daughter's weight and the doctor weighs them. And you know what? Technically, very low, but technically they're within their BMI range. They're tall and... And that... Sorry, I'm going to cut you off. No, you're good. Important to note. I mean, that opens a full other door of conversation. It could be like conversation for another time, but certainly relevant to eating disorders is the widespread weight bias and fat phobia in yes. our society and in the medical community. I cannot tell you how many times... I have had a patient with an eating disorder who's really sick, who's really doing a lot of harm to their body. Mm -hmm. And they go to their doctor and because their BMI is either on the little bit of the higher side or normal, their doctor's like, oh, they're fine. BMI is normal. Their weight's fine. And it's like, oh my God, it, it grinds my gears because even though I have a doctorate, I'm not a medical doctor and their opinion's always going to trump mine. In terms of the patient or the parent's eyes, and then then like it makes your role very hard, in, so much harder. So right. So anyway, I just wanted to to note that as well for people listening. That is certainly a really really big problem in within the eating disorder world. Yeah, is fat phobia. 
in our country and the medical community, weight bias. Yeah. It's a huge problem that maintains eating disorders for sure. Even with an obesity, somebody can be overweight, clinically overweight or obese and still have an eating disorder. There are people where they're like, I see, they don't, they barely eat anything. But if you also follow some of the metabolic research, and again, I'm not a medical doctor either, and look at how different calorie in, calorie out diets, et cetera, can really screw with your metabolic flexibility and your ability to, our, our bodies aren't advanced and going, hey, I saw this fad and watched a YouTube video on it. They're kind of like cavemen bodies. They're like, hey, you're starving we got to save this fat for the winter because otherwise we don't survive, right? It's the, there's not logic being put into it. It's basic functionality. And so if you're not getting enough, that doesn't just mean, okay, it's going to eat my visceral fat. It's going to eat this fat. It's going to whatever. Sometimes you're going to continue to gain weight and screw up that metabolism even more so that when you do eat a normal nutrient-rich meal, you are gaining weight. And then you're going to be like, really upset, right? Because I did the right things, quote unquote. And so there is that bias of even if someone is overweight or even clinically in that obese category, that they can't have an eating disorder. Or that they can't just be a regular normal person and that's where their body's supposed to be. Or yeah, they have that set point. That's how their body functions. Right. I, I always make sure to be mindful of that and say that, that there are tons of people who just live well at a higher BMI. Right. You know, being a higher BMI does, is not synonymous with being out of shape or being unhealthy. I think our, our society has given us that visual, but it's really, it comes down to lifestyle, really. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of thin people who don't have a good lifestyle and who, who can be at risk for type 2 diabetes. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's a whole tangent, but I, I just, given that this is about eating disorders, I wanted to just put that out there for your listeners that... Be mindful of how fat phobia and weight bias may play into your loved ones. Um, Absolutely. So your process as a support. And your process even of how we, let's just be honest, as women, a culture is always saying skinnier, thinner, prettier, better, sexier, this, that, more successful, right? That, that's imaging. And even if you're completely healthy, no matter what, all of us, and, and, and not leaving you men out, certainly men can get into this, but as being a woman, I can only speak to my own experience in terms of it can be hard to just be comfortable in our own skin. It's always like there's always another thing we should or could do to improve this for the peanut gallery here. And really realizing like this isn't an evaluation on your health level or not. But really, if you're eating the nutrients well, if you're living a balanced lifestyle, you mentioned the malnourished brain. I often say to folks coming in, this gets missed sometimes, but are you eating and sleeping? Because that will screw with you, with your emotions, with your mental health, if we're not getting sleep and we're not getting food. These are things we need to basic function. And when we see, especially within OCD, people not eating, not sleeping, Boy, we tend to reach more of those higher severity levels, sometimes have more of those episodes of psychosis or whatnot when we're not getting that. Because as you said, that's enhancing the malnourished brain is enhancing those OCD symptoms. Certainly insomnia is not helping either. And so if you have OCD plus malnourishment plus lack of sleep, I mean, that's a cocktail Storm. For a lot of disoriented, just reality testing in that space. It's like if you have somebody, 
And we talk about this in our book. If they have, you know, for anorexia, for example, and OCD, you want to be doing exposures either way. But in the beginning, you really would want to prioritize exposures that increase food and weight. Because to your point you were just making, if you're doing, you could be the best ERP specialist in the world who's doing great exposures with you, but if our brain is still malnourished, your brain is going to be, the malnourished brain is almost going to be like diluting the ERP. Yeah. Like biologically, our brains, you, this would happen to you or I, if we were starved, we would become more obsessive and more compulsive. And even if we don't have OCD. So it's like you you will be giving the dose of treatment and then doing this thing that's like undercutting it as you continue to starve yourself. Yeah. So, but also too, with anorexia, we know not that OCD is not incredibly serious and debilitating, but we know there's a high mortality rate for anorexia. So we would really want to be getting that person stable first, but really tailoring exposures toward weight, increased food intake towards weight gain. And then eventually you can expand your exposures to other OCD domains. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to address the most vital thing first, right? And if you're not getting enough nutrient for all your body's functioning, and some of the telltale signs we can tell is like, I'm not shedding hair or anything. I'm not menstruating. I'm not growing. Maybe there's a growth stunt. But you're going to you're gonna want to talk with your doctors. You're going to want to collaborate, which is hard when sometimes the doctors don't get it. And, oh, they seem healthy to me. They, they're thin. Well, that's good. It's like, oh, gosh. I know. It's, it's so it's, hard. It's difficult. And, and, I, I, and, and the reason I, I highlighted anorexia a few times today is because in, in my experience, it, and we talk about this in our book as well, too, when, when you have the comorbid presentation, we talk about, like, an interdependent presentation and an independent presentation, mm-hmm. meaning does the eating disorder and the OCD, do they just co-occur and they're just like side by side, but they're not really entangled. They're just like, like they're, they have OCD, you know, about maybe germs or cleanliness or about morality, something like that, or, or about like pedophilia or something. Yeah. And then they also have an eating disorder and those two things don't really bleed into each other. That would be the independent presentation. And in my experience, I've seen that more with bulimia and binge eating where they're, they're, they, they definitely can co-occur, mm-hmm. but they're just more like two parallel guys. Kind of detached, not affecting each right. other directly. Right. Where I think it gets really fuzzy is with anorexia. I've seen they are so interlinked and the anorexia and the OCD become so interwoven Especially when they have, and I see this one a lot, I talk about this a lot in the book, the, the subdomain of OCD of like morality and being a good person. Yeah. That is really tied with anorexia. And I think this goes back to fat phobia is in our society, we have indirectly and directly linked restriction and thinness with being a good moral person and overeating or indulgence or being fat linked to being not a good person. Yeah. So these things can get really linked. And I think that's when the presentation of OCD and eating disorders really becomes a problem for clinicians. I think when I see this independent presentation, as a specialist in both, I can talk with my patient. All right, let's, let's, let's look here. Which one's causing more distress? Which one's causing more impairment? Okay, I'll let you keep ritualizing and washing your hands. Let's do X, Y, and Z, get your eating better. And then we'll, then we'll, then we'll get to the OCD. We can separate them out. Right. 
too difficult for treatment planning. And that's similar to PTSD, too. Like, you know, here's the trauma. We're not going to do ERP on trauma, but we might do prolonged exposure. We may do some other, hope you're doing some other work for the PTSD. But you, yeah, you can kind of separate them out, but you can also separate them. Right. But then you see that interplay, especially when you think about this coming down to a feeling of being out of control, uncertainty within anorexia, but also within OCD, looking at meticulous levels of rigidity, perfectionism. And that's where I think that's where Melissa and I, my partner, I don't my practice, why we wrote this book is because we were getting all these referrals because we're seeing so many clinicians who in the OCD world, I love, I love being in the OCD world and the anxiety world because it's almost like if you're a specialist in those things, we're all on the same team and we know it's ERP, it's exposure treatment. It's like, is the treatment pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. From, a, from a psychological perspective. And that's wonderful. I love being part of that community. In the eating disorder world in the United States, it's really a bit of a free-for-all, whereas evidence-based treatment, CBT, behavior treatment, is not really so mainstream. Now, if you go to the UK or something, it is there. But over here, it's like anybody can do whatever they want. And so you see a lot of, like, part of my language, like some weird shit in the eating disorder. It's very anecdotal. It's like this anecdotal. with me Anecd- with another client. Yes. And so Yes, anecdotal. Yeah. And so what we were finding is that a lot of our OCD colleagues were phenomenal. They're just like, oh, I don't treat eating disorders though. And then we're seeing a lot of our eating disorder colleagues who are doing questionable eating disorder treatment, let alone have no idea about how to treat OCD. And so we just, in having this training in both, we were getting these referrals for these like complex cases of like, oh yeah, they have OCD too. And where most of them were this restrictive eating disorder and OCD where they were so interwoven with, like you said, the perfectionism, the morality, the meticulousness. And that's really where we as clinicians were like, well, we don't really, there's no research on this. There's a lot of research indicating the co-occurrence. Others, if you look, tons of research saying, yep, big problem. They, these two things co-occur. 62% overlap with anxiety disorders and, and 40 some odd percent of that being OCD specifically. And much overlap. And then, Nicole, the craziest part of that is You'd think researchers would be like, oh, maybe we should look into how to treat this. There's one study there. had, I mean, I look because we were knee deep in the research for over a year of my life. One study that focused really on how to treat comorbid eating disorder and OCD in, in, in a residential treatment center. Was that at Rogers? I believe it was at I Rogers. I think it was. Oh, don't, don't quote me on it. I, I, said, I won't quote you on it, but I, I've looked at research too, and I feel like it's Rogers. I mean, I feel I like it would Rogers. Yeah, yeah. But I know it was Simpson and all that was the authors, and I forget what journal it's published in. But yeah, I think that's a huge problem because then it's like you have clinicians like yourself or even my, myself and me. I'm a specialist in both of these things. But the, the truth of the matter is there is no direct roadmap on how to do this. Yeah. That's what our book highlights is, is saying, look, we're not a treatment manual, but here are things we have picked up along the way. Here are things to consider. But that's really, and it was really the co-occurrence of the restrictive eating disorder and OCD that really I have found myself as a clinician and working with my colleagues where my colleagues have really struggled about what do we do with that? Right. And, and where families, loved ones are like, I don't know what to do with my child because We've been to this OCD therapist who's telling us to do this. We went to this eating disorder therapist who's telling us to do this. 
And these things are contradicting each other. Right. And, you know, I have a running joke here. For If any of my clients listen, they'll be like, yep, that's our joke. We have a lot of the what they're getting from the hospital treatment is that could have been an email. Like they're waiting months to get in. And then they're like, do blood work and we'll see you next time. Okay. And then they get wait months and they get in and then they're like, yes, you have a, an eating disorder and you need to increase your calories. And they're like, duh. I mean, come on. You know? And so I remember with clients, I started looking up evidence-based practices for eating disorder while trying to link them to somebody that knows better, which I'm, I'm learning. I know more than I realize, but I looked up family-based treatment and the goals basically were like eat to be nourished, number one, try to reduce the amount that you have to be supervised. A lot of these people coming into treatment are already on supervised feeds. It's the only thing they've gotten is a nutrition plan and supervised feeds. But you think of like the distress and the environmental factors. There's not really a big shift changing in the family dynamic around food other than I have to please you and I'm kind of pissed about it because you take so long to eat and now I have to sit here for a freaking hour every time while you're eating and you have to eat all these snacks and school and and yes family members are going through frustration so not trying to downplay that or delegitimize that but at the same time you're not getting a lot of education on how some of your language around food some of your family culture and rituals around food some of the discussion around what we're gonna do also can feed into this or accommodate how we don't go to certain restaurants. We always book a place that has its own kitchenette because we know like you're only going to eat the peanut butter and jelly or you're only going to have the whatever calories and we have to do this big fat calorie plan for you and pack snacks. And the person starts to feel like a hassle, which they're already, especially within certain eating disorders, feeling such a sense of guilt and shame that that just piles on. And what does it do? It drives up that urge to restrict, depending on the eating disorder, it drives up that level of feeling out of control, uh, level of uncertainty. And so then we lean into that even harder, much like an OCD going, okay, but if I could just get some certainty on this, right? And so it becomes, it becomes this really tricky thing where I've gone, well, maybe For all of its worth, maybe it's better that they ended up with me in the sense of like, I'm recognizing that there's nothing really uniform. Just, and to be fair, my probably peripheral dive on it, but a dive nonetheless on the research on how to treat eating disorder. It did seem pretty scattered. Yeah, I find too, I think actually in your background in the OCD, even though you may not have formal training in eating disorders, would actually make you a better eating disorder therapist than you may think. You probably know more than you think just from a place of having the background in OCD. I think that my OCD colleagues, even if they don't, they're not formally trained in eating disorders, they have more of a pragmatic approach to how to treat it just because they're, they're already thinking from the lens of exposure and they're behaviorists. Yeah. Whereas I think it's honestly, I think it's harder to go for as an eating disorder person to train it to OCD. Not that it can't be done. I mean, Melissa and I did that. I think it's, but I think you, if you want to do that, I think you got to be really solid as like a CBT or and like really big on empirical support treatments. I think if you're an eating disorder therapist and you're, I don't know, I wouldn't be mindful if I say this, but less emphasizing of evidence-based care, OCD is going to be a much harder thing to delve into because we know OCD treatment, it's like boom, boom, boom. It, it's There's nothing like deep, 
and sexy about it. It's like we're not getting into this person's like the deep, dark person parts of their mind. We're like saying, okay, these are, these are what your obsessions are. These are what your compulsions are. This is going to be our treatment plan. It's very straightforward. And so, and it doesn't get swept away in the content. Right. Whereas maybe if I was a different type of therapist before I came into OCD, I came into OCD because I got a client that was so obviously OCD that even I couldn't miss it. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I've treated OCD my entire career. I just missed it as generalized anxiety or these other things, right? I know. Me too. That was me year, many years ago. Yeah. And so when I find, unless you like grew up and went to school and happened to have connections and Rogers was across the street, McLean was right there and it was like prominent in the community, you probably didn't learn a lot about it in grad school. Oh, uh, yeah. I have a, a friend that was on the podcast last year talking about how that's her dissertation topic about how are we learning about OCD. It's like a slide in psychopathology. Well, yeah, it's that. Yeah. I teach yeah, for I, psychopath. I, 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 I knew shit about that and eating disorders and a lot of different things. Personality disorders, people get stuck on a lot of these. Our, different... our grad programs focus on the big thing. They focus on a lot of anxiety and depression, which look, Important. we know, yes, that that's anxiety and depression is like the this the passengers to pretty much all the other disorders but yeah i mean a lot of the being able to be a specialist a lot of that i find happens after graduate school you 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 get your specializations after and then you and then depending on where you do your continuing education work and what your state or your province wherever you are in the world what your board requires you get to choose outside of your legal and ethical or supervision credits you get to choose what you want to specialize in and you can either throw it away and do whatever course just to get quick credits or you can go and you can learn more about what you're passionate about doing and what applies to your clients what applies to your research or work whatever you're doing and so in terms of thinking about this then for families that are like okay I have this concern my loved one could be a spouse which I think spouse or if you're dating in a serious relationship or a partnership can sometimes be harder because you have more, hopefully, of that equal footing in the relationship versus that dynamic of a parent going, we're going in because I'm scared that you're going to die and I don't know what's going to happen. And, and you have a little more leverage there authoritatively as a parent. But can we talk with going into treatment? Because sometimes people will be like, I know I'm scared and I'm scared of what I'll have to do to not be scared anymore, but I'm scared. So certainly we can get some buy-in there. But often people are not like willingly like, yay, let me go to an appointment. We can talk about more food and I eat food for three hours a day and all of this. And so I know that I've had some strategies that have worked for me, but I was wondering if you had any tips and tricks for the support community that has someone suffering from potentially both one or the other and feeling like, how do I, how do we get in the door? They're really like, they're very avoidant and not wanting to do this. Yeah. Well, it's important to note that for adolescent eating disorders, the patient buy-in is less important, especially if you're going to do FBT, family-based treatment, which I want to just put plug out. That is the gold, the gold standard for especially anorexia, adolescent anorexia. And for a while, the research, the CBTers and the FBTers were kind of neck and neck in terms of adolescent bulimia, in terms of which one was superior. It was CBT for a while. It is now an FBT. So I just want to put that out there. Adolescent eating disorders, first line of treatment should be FBT. In which case, patient buy-in is not that important. Right. The, you, the buy-in is with the parents. The you, you have to get the parents. And, you, and really, creating a, you know, creating a scene of where this is dire. 
presenting a picture that eating disorders are very serious. When you catch it in adolescence, you have the ability to completely get rid of it and then completely change the track of your child's life. Yeah. If you let this go, the longer it becomes part of your life, the more egocentric it becomes. So you really, you're doing a lot of like motivational interviewing stuff around the parents. That's for the clinicians. Now, just what for, what for parents to know, I guess kind of like what I was saying to my patients, like is like be aware of that this may not seem too serious now, or it might seem like, okay, we can kind of tend to this in our, the way that we do in our family for right now. But eventually your child's going to be older and this is really going to take a life of their own. And, and hey, assuming this eating disorder doesn't cause any kind of like catastrophic, like some kind of fatality. Organ failure, or, or, anything. Yeah. yeah, or major medical comorbidity. Yeah. It's going to destroy your child's quality of life. At the very least, quality of life is going to be completely destroyed if you don't get this under control like right now. And I, and I really like to paint this picture. Like if your kid had a broken ankle and they would, but I still want to play lacrosse. What parent is going to let their kid, you're going to be like, I don't care. You're not playing lacrosse. Like, they, you would never, that would be so blasphemous that you think they have a broken ankle and your parents are like, well, she wants to play. That would never happen. Right. But with eating disorders and being underweight, I think parents feel a little more powerless. They're like, well, she wants to play. What are we going to do? And so keeping in mind that this is not your child's like character. This is not their personality. This is not the way they are. This is an illness. Right. This illness takes the mask of your child. It looks like your child, but really recognizing what would you do if your child had cancer? What would you do if they had a broken bone? What did you do when your kids were toddlers and they didn't want to put their coat on? You didn't let them go out in the cold. You found a way to get the coat on them. Right. For recognizing that parents have more strength to overcome this than they think they do. And they've done, they have examples in their own parenting of where they've had to do what was best for their child, even though their child didn't want them to do it time and time again. So I really try to help parents like pull from those past experiences and recognize, I know anorexia or the bulimia, it's a beast, but like, it's not a beast that you can't handle. Yeah. Yeah. And that's at the first half of my answer, because the second half of my answer for adults, it is different. Adults, we do need more buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. It's a similar message we give in OCD. You're stronger than this. They're stronger. Then, then we realize, and we're doing a lot of this couching to protect them, and it's coming out of the best of intentions, but at the same time, it's not leading us towards this goal. And so we need to look at what do we need to lead us towards this goal? We do the same thing with an OCD. Yeah, they're stronger than you think. They're not going to crumble, and you're not going to crumble. You're strong as well. And so sometimes even getting those parents connected to other supports and cheerleaders that can go, yeah, you got this. <laughs> We've all been there with kids having a complete meltdown at the most inconvenient time and whatnot. And and did that experience define our life? No, we can think back and recall them if we're pushed to, but it's probably not on the forefront of our mind. And at the same time, this can feel so scary. And having had a picky eater in terms of my son's situation that I explained earlier, it is very, very stressful feeling like, hey, we might have to go to the hospital and get a feeding tube if you don't eat. And at the same time, while you don't want to threaten, that is a reality of a consequence right. here when yeah. someone is not getting the proper nutrition. Yeah. And I look at it, it's like, it's not as a threat. It's, it's not, not a threat. About, it's like, a, we need to save your life. And right. so if, if this is not working, then we need to up the dose of intensity. Yeah. 
And it, you know? it's similar to when when we're assessing for suicidal ideation, right? If we have someone that we can't guarantee is going to be safe, ultimately, we may have to go to the emergency room. We may right. have to make that call because their safety matters. And ultimately, even though they don't like what they were feeling, if they're like, man, that wasn't worth it, then they're going to learn, man, that wasn't worth it. It is a natural part of the learning, and it's not to be a threat or a consequence. Or just to be seen as punitive. Or seen as punitive. And I think that's that. So this gets into a tricky area because sometimes, especially when parents or, or spouses and partners might make this ultimatum where it's harder, right? Of like, you've got to do this because the consequences are, speaking of dire, OCD and eating disorder will tell you how dire this, mm-hmm. the situations are. But this is dire. Your life is on the line. So I need to take you. What we learn is even though I still didn't like that feeling or I still didn't like eating, I certainly didn't like being hospitalized. And if it's a choice between I can eat a little of this and get them off my back versus needing to go and have a feeding tube put in and down my nose and into my gut or whatever, not pleasant. Uh, then I think I can tolerate the distress of this. And in the beginning, that might be your buy-in. I find buy-in a lot with clients. I will say, hey, this person's really on your back about eating your favorite subjects, right? Yeah, yeah, they're really on my back. Okay, what if I could get them off your back a little bit? Because I think I I feel good about my chances, but you're going to have to also work with me because there's a little bit you're going to have to give for us to get them off your back and then we'll kind of see where how we do, right? That buy-in, similar to what you might have within hoarding disorder, sometimes within obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, of like, this may feel more aligned. Like, we were talking about insight and judgment and how we were kind of conceptualizing that earlier. Like, this might feel a little more in sync with who you are, and that's why you're kind of, like, doubling down on this. But it's really distressing to have them on your back. So if we could get them off your back a little bit and it just meant you're participating in this maybe we could even like set a timer and they're not hovering they're there they have to supervise it yeah 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 but they're not on your back and you get to go do your thing for a half hour instead of eating for an hour and a half like what do you think and be able to negotiate these things just so we're being able to get a little bit of buy-in a lot of kids like to play sports too i want to play the sports well you're not going to play sports if you're not even eating and that's fair because it's not safe if you're not eating to even do basic functioning. Can Just be, like the, it wouldn't be safe to play with a broken ankle. With a broken ankle. And at the same time, yeah, if we want to be able to participate in these things, well, I might be able to put in a good word for you participating in this. But mm-hmm. this is also where you're going to have to work with me a little bit. Just get them off your back kind of thing. And that's where we can start with. We get a little bit of buy-in. It's not necessarily their motivation, but it is their choice because they're starting to prioritize those values. A lot of times for folks struggling with eating disorder and with NOCD, this can be the case too. There can be a a real sense of like, I don't even know who my identity is. I'm afraid of who I am versus who I really am. Like, I don't know who I am, but I'm afraid of becoming this person, whether it's fat or unable to whatever be accepted by this group at school or whatever the sense of identity is. And when we're looking at adolescent cases, developmentally appropriate to be figuring out what our identity is can just add some gasoline to that fire. So having the parents understand like they can do this, you can do this. You guys are strong. You've lived with eating disorder and OCD or potentially both 
to this point for this long, chances are you've dealt with some other shit in life too that you've dealt with. You can deal with this too. And getting some of that buy-in to be able to start treatment is going to be really important. One last thing with that, and especially we talked about this a little bit with the doctors, and it, it did make me recall that point about college earlier. I remember a dear friend having such a hard time just concentrating, just even showering. Like the weight of wet hair was like making them feel faint in the shower because of how malnourished and how just sick they were at that point. We went to an urgent care and the doctor was like, well, you know, you're within your your BMI, right? So it's like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Like the fact that they finally even went to a doctor and now this is the feedback. They feel justified or I think you look good. That's a cute top. I mean, completely inappropriate things. And so it can be really hard to get buy in for treatment when that's what the medical professional is saying. So if we're looking at a higher level of care needed, and in my case, for example, the highest level of care is me, basically. That's not great. And the outpatient of doing the eating nutrition plans. So if you have to travel to go to a higher level of outpatient care, intensive care, or even potential residential partial hospitalization or even full hospitalization, depending on severity, what? kind of takeaways can we give for family members where we go, okay, at what level is it hitting this threshold of this is this serious? Like we would travel to that specialist for this brain cancer. We're going to travel to this specialist for this eating disorder. Right. Like how do we do that when the medical doctor is like, they're healthy technically? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think we want to look at the whole picture, right? Look at, look at the person's functioning as a whole. I mean, I have worked with people where I know psychologically they are very ill, but their lab work magically is like not that bad. And like, okay. And I say, look, the doctor's not lying about that. I mean, medically, your body right now is okay. That doesn't mean you're not going to like faint at driving at the wheel and like could not get in a car accident and have a major fatality. Like that doesn't mean that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you, you couldn't have a heart attack that isn't, isn't really showing up right now. It doesn't mean you can't collapse from electrolyte imbalance. Like I try to, Remind people that just because like this isolated lab work looked okay, that doesn't mean it can't rapidly take a turn. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I, I don't, I say, look, okay, yeah, your lab work is okay. But what does the rest of your life look like? What does the rest of your child's life look like? And really like get them to do a mental inventory of the whole picture of functioning mm-hmm. and seeing like, is this, and, and if they are a parent and it's their child or if it's their, their spouse, like saying like, now is the time and i always make sure to say like an eating disorder is never going to go away it's never you're never going to grow out of it it's never going to go away mm-hmm. so of course if you have a teenager a lot of teenagers experiment with dieting and stuff like that that a lot of people do grow out of but if you're at the level where you're already talking to a provider mm-hmm. chances are it's more than just like your teenagers experimenting with a diet mm-hmm. I really want parents and loved ones to know it's not going to just go away. Just like cancer doesn't just go away. Mm-hmm. It's once it's here, we have to be aggressive about this because the longer it's in your loved one's life, mm-hmm. the more it's going to take from them psychologically, physically, the more it's going to increase their, I mean, especially with anorexia, chronic anorexia. I mean, it, I always often say to people, if chronic anorexia doesn't acutely kill someone, mm-hmm. It's shaving years off of their life, mm-hmm. 100%, because their organs are working double time. Mm-hmm. But you may have a 35-year-old 
whose organs really are like a 60 year old because they're 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 being required to overwork themselves on very little energy Mm -hmm. kind of like your car if you just continue to not put gas in your car and you just always ride on e that car is gonna break down more it's gonna yeah it's gonna go watch quicker car that you take care of so i let people know that like if you're at that point where you're looking wow my my loved one really hasn't has an eating disorder and it's they're not really responding to like the things we've done at home creating like i said the scene of it's dire it's only going to get worse Mm -hmm. their quality of life is only going to get worse their level of impairment they're not going to be able to succeed in college or in a job or if they do if they can kind of hold it together to get good grades they're going to have no other quality of life kind of pulling at what are their motivators looking at things like you know their fertility their longevity of their health their ability to do if they they like to be active if you can't really be active you can't run marathons you can't really go hiking when your electrolytes are off you're so malnourished so i really like to kind of pick out what is the value here Mm -hmm. and poke at those to really create the scene and it's not going to get better on its own right Yeah. And being able to visualize, like, what would you want to be able to do? If you like to travel, but you can only travel in these certain areas where you can access the certain foods and then you tend to lose a lot of weight and then we can't travel for a long time because of the consequence and whatnot, you know. Do we want to just be able to go, I would love to see Paris and I'm going to go there. I'm going to go, like, make an idea. It doesn't even have to be that big. It can be like, I'm going to go to the park down the street. I don't have margin to usually go or the strength to go and I want to just be able to go and whether they're having a picnic I want to celebrate a friend's dinner and I want to be able to just participate instead of being so consumed by all of this like having those ideas I mean often it's hard for people to imagine that it's so isolating where they're Mm -hmm. at in that moment but I encourage families too to go imagine what you would want that to be like well yeah I would love to go and not have to spend more money on a place that has a kitchenette and this and that. And although now with Airbnb and all those kind of things, it's a little easier to to have access to stuff. But it's like, yeah, I would love to be able to just do that. Like, I would love to have the freedom to not have my my travel or my extracurriculars defined by my mental health. But be able to go and do what I want and you know mental health it's going to come with us our physical health is going to come with us but we get to lead and 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 that idea is pretty enticing for a lot of people but hard to imagine when you've been living with this disorder for a while and a lot of people come into treatment reactive not not like we're seeing some of the signs and to be fair they can really snowball over time and if you live together if you're family or been married for a long time, some of those signs are so subtle and grow so gradually over time that sometimes it's hard to catch it. But it really speaks to the point you're making. The longer this goes unchecked, the bigger it becomes and the harder it is to undo not just rituals, but habits at this point. Like this is a habit. Like I've never, as an adult, functioned a different way. You're talking about the chicken uh, example. In 16 years, I haven't eaten chicken. Now that chicken is really scary compared to how it felt at five. Yeah. Oh, great points. Well, Jenna, I really thank you for taking the time. Jenna just recently spoke at ADAA on this overlap of eating disorder and OCD. And as you've mentioned a couple of times, so you have a book that is going to be coming out early 2024, right? 
And that's going to be a clinician's handbook. It's going to be on comorbid eating disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder. So that will really be a guide to the challenges we see in treatment. But as we're talking about, we as OCD therapists have a better understanding at large anyway of some of the functionality and some of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So being able to tap into that more and hopefully we can see more of that showing up in IOCDF conferences, ADAA is certainly showcasing it as you were able to just speak on. And you're doing trainings occasionally as well. So we can direct folks over to Center for Hope and Health. Would that be the best place to learn yeah, about? Yeah, so go to the website and you fill out a contact form. Also our email, just if you want to get to our office manager, if you have questions or want more information from me, is info at centerforhopeandhealth.com. Perfect. So we can learn more about Jenna there. I'm going to put a link to that on this episode's blog over at OCD Family Podcast as well. And then... Thanks to Jenna, we're going to have links to the EDEQ, and then I'll send the link to how to score it as well for any of your clinician listeners. Which is great, because for some of y'all that might look up like these measures, you're like, that's great, but there's no scoring guide anywhere. And you're like, yeah, this will pretty, it's it's not, it's like I said, it's not as easy as just add them up, but it's not that complex. It's pretty easy to score it. Right. And Likert scales are pretty much the thing in most all of our most of all of our evaluation measures. And so you you learn the, it's kind of like a card reader at a store, right? Like they all work a little, a little bit, bit differently, but you get the general premise. Oh, for sure, I, yeah. Leave a card and <laughs> take it out. <sighs> yeah. But thank you so much, Jenna. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Are you going to be at the IOCDF conference in San Francisco this year? So unfortunately I d- did not. As you know, Nicole, I just had a baby. You can't go to San Francisco for like a day. And so in July, the ICED, which is the International Conference on Eating Disorders, I'm doing a similar panel, OCD and Eating Disorders. So for anybody that might be tuning in, because certain with search engine optimization, some people are going to be looking into this talk probably because it's going to be talking about eating disorders. If you treat eating disorders, you can learn more information by going to Center for Hope and Health and getting more information there or at the international conference that is going to also yeah. be in July. So. I love that. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Jenna. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you for that. Well, has this been helpful or what? I mean, the statistics alone regarding the overlap of eating disorder and OCD is staggering. Understanding obsessive compulsive symptomology mimics the malnourished brain. That's also really helpful information. And knowing that while the medical community is an important part of the treatment plan, and MDs and nutritionists need to be able to say, yes, we're getting enough nutrients for our vital organ functioning, for growth, for an ability to think and concentrate, we're getting enough calories to survive. We need to recognize when our medical team doesn't know what they don't know. Many medical teams don't get OCD, and if they are meeting patients or capturing them at this malnourished state, having insight on OCD would be pretty darn helpful. I find getting releases of information from clients help me bridge and advocate for the mental health side of things, and some doctors are great about that and are very happy to work with you, and some aren't. But the good news is hope doesn't have to stop there. So it is hard, and we do have to go against the grain a bit, particularly if blood work does come back good enough 
or a person's BMI is within a certain range. Like Jenna said, recognizing the stigma or the fat phobia, zooming out and seeing the functioning or lack thereof in the life of your child, your spouse, maybe a parent, that's important too. And it's hard because as we mentioned, even some of the larger treatment centers that provide higher levels of care for OCD still don't fully understand the overlap with eating disorder. So part of how we address this is we need to talk about it. We need to promote awareness. We need to have these conversations. Last weekend, Jenna and her roundtable did just that. This summer, she'll be doing the same, only this time at the annual eating disorder conference. She and her colleague Melissa are writing this book, which is going to be due out in 2024. I can't wait for that one, Jenna. But Jenna and Melissa, they can't do it all. They are talking about it. We are talking about it, and we need to keep talking about it so that others can talk about it. So here in my intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of the show, I want to encourage you to pick at least one person to talk about what you've learned about the overlap of eating disorder and OCD. Are you scratching your head and go, well, actually, I still have questions. Start a dialogue. Let's talk about those questions. If you're a practitioner at a group practice, maybe this means consulting with a colleague or a supervisor if you have one. If you're a researcher or a doctoral student looking for a niche, (laughs) hey, talk about a research need. More information is needed. If you're a parent struggling with an eating disorder in your family, bring this up to your co-parent, a support resource, your family doctor, or a therapist. If you don't know of anyone in your life struggling with this but learn something new, then strike up a conversation with a friend. Chances are there are people around you in life struggling with a myriad of things that we have no clue is going on for them or someone that they love. But even if folks we engage with aren't affected by this at all, this is how we raise awareness. This is how we support better understanding. We communicate. And considering all Jenna and I discussed today, I know I've already started having chats with some of my colleagues about the prevalence of ED and our ability as OCD specialists to be more helpful than we realized. And I'll be the first to tell you, I've referred clients on that have called wanting or needing a certified eating disorder specialist. And that's not who I am. It's not what I do. It's not the credentials I have. But now I'm learning my competency to support treatment is probably pretty darn good. And good can grow to great if we take the time, make the investment, and learn more. So if you don't have a particular passion or interest in treating ED, that's eating disorder, that's fine. You do you. But we can still have these conversations because whether we treat it or not, eating disorder is showing up and taking a seat on the therapy couch. And just as we would want to be mindful of when trauma or co-occurring ADHD or anything else is coming into the session too. We need to know all the players that are crowding up the room. So take a step toward gaining awareness by sharing what you've learned or dialoguing further with someone in your life. And as a reminder, thanks to Jenna and ultimately the UK for providing public domain, I'm posting a link to the EDEQ and the scoring questionnaire for practitioners interested in using this as an evaluative measure for ED. So you can check that out at the blog at ocdfamilypodcast.com. That's season one, episode 39, as well as any other citations referenced info about Jenna and all that jazz. (laughs) So let's get to talking, folks, because, hey, we're better together. 
Till next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family. Like Dr. DeLossi sharing comorbidities that are bossy. That's right, I went there. And you can too at OCD Family Podcast.